Hello, my name is Taylor Clement, and I'm the head of school at Kirk Day School. I'm Dan Doriani, friend of Kirk Day School and a grandfather of a couple kids who go here. That's absolutely right. And Dr. Doriani, this is, I think, your third time being on our podcast. Sounds about right. Yep. Yeah. So we're uh, coming back around. This time we are discussing gender, marriage, and sexuality. Uh, we're going to give a reason of why we're discussing it today, but thanks for coming back on and thanks for being willing to have this discussion with us. Glad to be here. So in this discussion, we know that this is not a light topic. This is a hot topic today. Um, gay marriage uh, is is definitely forefront of so many politics and, and the pride movement, the gender movement of, of self-identifying and, and what we're feeling and, and how we identify. So many of these things, um, I would say, are blended into culture in, in a myriad of different ways. But where we want to start and using your, your training as a theologian and a writer and, and a pastor we really want to answer some of the questions of what does Scripture say and how can we be winsome in our response with a soft heart but a stiff backbone, as Ben Porter would say. Right, right, no doubt. So when you, uh, especially when you encounter somebody with gender dysphoria, the first uh, sense we should probably have is, how would you like waking up every day, getting dressed, thinking I have the wrong body? Yeah. So we need to, uh, first of all, extend compassion to people who feel alienated from their body, and that could be with regard to their gender, but also people are also um, deeply dissatisfied with their own body for other reasons. And, you know, all our bodies are imperfect, and no body does everything you want it to do, right? You know, right, right before we started, uh, I don't know if it was you mostly or me mostly, I'll take the blame, you know, we managed to spill some water. That's right. And uh, neither one of us intended for our bodies to do that. So that's trivial. We all have it, but some people have it much more painfully and much more persistently, and we need to be compassionate. Yeah. So our school recently passed, a, 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 I guess, a statement on gender, marriage, and sexuality, and we're getting ready to publish this. It came from our board, and really it, it stems from the denomination, um, which did a study. And in our own presbytery, the Missouri Presbytery, you participated in doing a, a study and a deep dive of what scripture says about these issues so that we have a theological framework to engage today. And it's not just saying, well, we feel that scripture says this. We want to know what scripture says. So start there, if you don't mind, and just kind of talk about your experience working with the Presbytery and what were some of the questions you guys were trying to answer? Well, we were, uh, let, me, let me not try to do that, actually, and say okay. we were trying to address all the questions. And so it took yeah. a long time to explain all the questions we were trying to address. But we decided to start with scripture and uh, to begin with affirmations and then also have denials and then answer the hot questions, having outlined what the Bible says first. So we began, as you can all, uh, as everybody who hears this would imagine, with creation. Uh, God, the creator, created the world with a certain order, and he created mankind male and female and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And that's, uh, you know, that's Genesis chapter 1. That's the fundamental structure. There are two genders, male and female. There are a tiny number, less than 1,000 per year, uh, children with, born with um, uh, problems in the genetic development of their external sexual characteristics, if I can say it that way. Uh, but of all the, uh, you know, of all the birth defects, it's the least common, and it's not normal. Most people who struggle do not struggle biologically. They struggle psychologically mm -hmm. with 
uh, the question of male and female. And that uh, outline is, is reiterated actually after the fall in Genesis chapter 5. It says God created, um, I'll just, you know, I'm going to turn to it and read yeah. it because that's probably the best thing to do. It says that uh, when God created man, he made him in, his, in the likeness of God, male and female, he created them and blessed them and named them man when they were created. So man or mankind, we would say today, or humanity is male and female. That's, that's pre-fall and it's post-fall. And then, of course, Jesus mm. repeats that when he said, from the beginning, God created the male and female. And when and define fall for a moment. For oh, yeah, those. sure. The fall. So the fall would be Adam and Eve. Adam, primarily responsible, uh, choosing to rebel against God, to do things their own way, uh, to make their own decision about what they should eat and do and how they should live and deciding to listen to the voice of the evil one instead of the voice of God. And the fall then leads to not only sinfulness, but also disorder in the creation. So thorns and thistles, and we would say then that, a genetic decay, birth defects. And then also a feeling deeply uncomfortable in your own skin and uh, not desiring, if you're a male, to, uh, to marry a woman or a woman not desiring to marry a man. Um, because there's no attraction there is a consequence of the disordering of the, of the world so that uh, we're not trying to blame people individually. There are a lot of things that are wrong with the world that are nobody's choice, but this is a fallen place. And uh, genetic disorders and uh, deep and mysterious unhappiness. Uh, you know, I have a lot of allergies. Maybe you do too. I do, yes. Uh, so, you know, that's not, nobody is culpable, nobody's sin, but it is a disorder and it is a consequence <clears throat> of the fall. If we would not be sneezing violently and hurting ourselves, Sometimes people sneeze so violently that they, they hurt themselves. Yes. And we would not have that malady if not for the fall. That is to say, God put us in a world that was, you might say, suitable for sinners. Enough pain in it to show us that uh, things are not the way they're supposed to be. Yeah. So in, in this, with, with gender dysphoria, we have, we have marriage. Um, and then, you know, there's the same-sex attraction. There's th right. These are three... I would say very distinctly different issues. Right. Um, one is just the view in, on, on marriage. Then you right. have the view on the attraction. Right. Um, and then there is the view of how I am created and desire to be. Right. And present myself as male or female. That's yeah. correct. Male or female. That's correct. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna start with kind of a broad sweeping question. It, and then we'll get down to to more of the minutia here. But mm -hmm. the first would really be. Have we seen an enlightenment in our culture, or have we seen a greater awakening of acceptance in our culture? And the reason why I'm framing it that way, um, throughout history it seems like, hey, science and math, we, we've become more enlightened, therefore we're able to do more incredible things. I mean, just like recording a podcast. This wasn't available to Kirk Day School 10 years ago, definitely not 20 years ago, and yet here we are compared to saying, well, now we're just choosing to do it because it was, you know, not in vogue, now it is in vogue. So kind of where's the balance there between enlightenment and then just saying, no, we, we've become more awakened to where we can step out into that? Yeah, so in a, in a very broad sense, I would say that regarding all these issues, we are in some ways more sensitive than we were. Uh, people always knew that there were, for thousands of years, people have known that there were <clears throat> there were men who were attracted to men sexually, not women, but it wasn't discussed a great deal. 
and likewise in our culture. So you could say there's there's more awareness, more conversation, and, and people have always in vastly smaller numbers than today, but there have always been people who were radically unhappy with their body, and and we have more awareness of it. So in one sense, you could say there's some degree of enlightenment, but the, the core issue, of course, is a move away from the idea that there is a God who created the world with purpose. And the simplest way of putting it is no creator, no created order. If there's no creator, there's no created order. And then we make whatever we order we wish. And so we say then secular people, we people in our culture, not you and I, but people in our culture say that marriage is a social construct that has immensely permeable boundaries that allow people to be happy in community. And then we leave male and female out of it and we leave reproduction out of it. So um, anytime two people commit themselves to each other, that's a marriage. So say some people, because we construct marriage. There's no external order to marriage. Similarly with gender, uh, if there's if gender is merely a social construct, then by all means, do what you want. Uh, if you want to present yourself as a male when you're female, you're free to do that if it makes you feel good. And if you wish to take hormones to suppress your femininity or suppress your masculinity or go further and, and engage in, in surgical procedures, you're free to do that because, you know, we're, we're homo faber. We're, we're man the maker. And some theologians have said the, uh, the ultimate uh, presentation or insistence on our capacity to, to fabricate is to change ourselves, uh, to, to do surgery and give ourselves medications. Instead of, you and I would say, if, if someone um, hates their body, you explore that psychologically and maybe medically. Why do you hate your body? And that could be, you know, I hate <clears throat> my hair or my, you know, my build or something like that, or I don't know, preposterously skinny or I'm overweight, whatever, whatever the case might be. Well, you know, you can do things about that. Well, even after I've gained weight or lost weight or whatever it is, changed my hair, I still hate my body. Well, let's discuss that. That's a spiritual problem. But then today we say, no, that's a physical problem. And, and you know, we have, we have drugs for that. Mm-hmm. You don't have to adjust your mind to reality that you are a man, you are a woman, you're a boy or a girl. We can, we can take medicine or we can take a scalpel and solve your problems for you. So we're, we're talking about a spiritual issue. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm going to ask the questions, obviously, because... That's why you're on the podcast, but also because I want to want to ask some blunt questions. Where where's the separation of holiness in in that? Because someone would say, "Well, I'm just dissatisfied. I, I don't feel like I can control that. Why is that unholy? Why is that sinful?" Mm-hmm. In comparison to just saying, "Well, you know, I might be dissatisfied with my car," and and of course, Scripture calls us to contentment. Right. But, but talk about why that, that might be more of a moral fabric than something else. More of a moral fabric than how my hair looks. Correct. Yeah. So that's, uh, first of all, it's a great question. And um, broadly speaking, we'd say it's our obligation to live as creatures under the creator and to accept the way God has made us. So <clears throat> if somebody's, let's stick with um, birth, the desire to be a different sex. So I'm, I'm born male. If I don't like that. It's my responsibility to explore what, what's behind that, not to say I'm autonomous, I can do whatever I want with my life. That's the fundamental ad- attitude of unbelief. The, the believer says, I need to ascertain why am I so dissatisfied with my body? What's, 
Was I beaten up as a boy? Was I little as a boy? Was I bullied? And I hate that. You know, a lot of people who have gender dysphoria were, were mistreated as children, adults who have. And, you know, as we like to say, um, experience doesn't give us wisdom, but reflecting well on experience does. So you bump into somebody, uh, you know, I had a conversation not terribly long ago with a woman who said, you know, I was presenting as a man for a number of years. Her teenage daughter was right there beside her. A very feminine looking woman. You know, let's see, she's 40 and she has a daughter's 13 or something. And she said, yeah, it was pretty straightforward. <clears throat> I was uh, I was raped, she said, when I was a teenager. And she's kind of a, a large woman, by which that's not a euphemism for, you know, anything negative. She's just tall and yeah. with broad yeah. shoulders. And so she could pass as a man. And then she'll never be raped again. Well, I under, we understand that. But uh, the solution to a bad experience is not simply to run the opposite direction. The solution is to, is to reflect on your experience and to realize that my experience is not finally determinative. God's, God exists, and he ordered the world, and he put us in his world. And we should reflect on our experience and respond to unpleasant things within the good structures he's given us. And we would say the same thing about our sexual desires and attractions. So over the past few years, we've seen a lot of theologians and church leaders come out on this issue specifically of saying, um, maybe changing their views or saying that we've, I've been convicted uh, of my view, and, and they, they come out and they change. And they say, right. you know— Affirm I, I, gay marriage. They affirm gay marriage. Right. Um, they, they affirm these, these different things that I would say are in conflict with what uh, not only our denomination, but, but now our school is, is saying right. we believe— Where's the difference between the line of compassion and understanding to the affirming of, of these beliefs? And why do you think these theologians and other church, churches have changed their stance on this? Because, you know, if you look at Scripture, Scripture never changes its stance on homosexuality. Right. It does change its stance on slavery. It changes its stance on women. It changes its stance on, on several things as we see the timeline of, of Scripture progress. Um, as far as the betterment and edification of humanity. Um, but it doesn't with gay marriage or homosexuality. Right. So I, I, that's, a, that's a long question, but, but kind right. of to, to reiterate, why, why have we seen theologians change, and then what's the difference between compassion and acceptance? Yeah, uh, why people change is essentially because we're influenced by culture more than we should be. That's the short answer. And if you're not affirming gay marriage, but simply supporting your friends who experience same-sex attraction, you're, you're, you're not supportive, you're hateful, you're judgmental, you're evil. Uh, the church is, um, needs to be rescued from its excessive morality, some would say. And we got to get with the program, which includes, by the way, evangelicals who would also uh, remove premarital sex from the standards also. You're going to just drive young people away. So you got to change your standards to keep up with the times is part of it. Um, the, another aspect of it is there's just a, the liberal or liberalizing tendency is always to move to general principles away from particular texts. So the Bible says we should love each other and be merciful to each other, be kind and compassionate, correct, but it also tells us how to go about doing that. And with regard to homosexuality, the first text, Genesis 19, and the last one, Jude 7, are the word we use is univocal. There is one voice. It doesn't change at all. And to be straight with you, liberal theologians who are free to say the Bible says X and the Bible is wrong, the liberal theologians agree that the Bible is opposed to same-sex sex acts and marriage. They just say the Bible's wrong. 
the, the quasi-conservatives say, um, we've misunderstood all along. And the liberal says, stop playing games. Just admit that you don't like what the Bible says. It's, it's clear what the Bible says. But the, you know, the quasi-evangelical view, the middle ground, the mushy middle ground is to say, let's just be compassionate. Let's not worry too much about particular texts. But God tells us how to live in broad principles like love and compassion and mercy. And in particular texts, we need both. So um, why the change? Another reason why the change occurs is that we do live in an age of identity, not an age of, you know, a thousand years ago, the key was honor. We were an honor-based, Western Europe was honor-based. Then for, you know, 500 and 300 and even 100 years ago, we were a morality-based culture. These are the rules. Today we're an identity-based culture. And so if, if my identity is that I am same-sex attracted or I'm confused about my gender, then uh, to deny a person the right to do whatever they want is an attack on their person. And in an identity-based age, an attack on the person is deeply evil. So to put it another way, when why do we change? Why do some theologians change and some Christians change? It's because we live in an age of identity and their identity is fragile. And so to do anything but give full affirmation to same-sex marriage or sex changes is to attack that person's identity. Therefore, it feels hateful or at, at least hard-hearted or unsupportive. And so we would say, no, actually, um, again, gender dysphoria is an easy one. It's actually better for you to try to adjust to the body you have than it is to try to change your body. We, we're, we're loving you long-term. Because, you know, the long-term, the studies of long-term effects of sex change and, and the hormones are not encouraging at all. The hormones and operations give short-term feeling, I've done something finally, but five or ten years later, everything comes roaring back. Plus, your body doesn't work as well as it should. Uh, that's, that's fascinating. So, I want to I go into that because I know you, I know you're an athlete, you love to play tennis, you're also... A little zealous about sports, just in, in the way that you you enjoy them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've enjoyed yeah. a lot of sports over the years. Yes, I'm not all that. I'm not a great athlete, but I'm. I like to play. And I like being to modest. Play hard. So, with that, I would say ath- athletics is one of those um, a religious and, and somewhat apolitical right. arenas. There can be arguments otherwise. Yes, but a, a religious and apolitical arenas where this issue has come up and it is split liberals and it is split conservatives because it, it, it's really now about your team. It's about winning. The Olympics are starting to wrestle with it. We've seen boys who um, devastate girls wrestling. Or things yes. Like that. Um, yep. Former wrestler who had to wrestle a girl, which is another story for another time. It was, right. um, you know, I'm glad to see that girls wrestling is taking on. I'm not glad to see that people are, are switching uh, in between. But that being said, talk a moment about athletics and this question and anything that you see that, that they're going to need to wrestle with long term. Because, again, you have some very staunchly liberal views, or at least politicians, that have more conservative views bec- in, in athletics. Yes. And it's, it's somewhat paradoxical because all of a sudden it's like, well, I believe everything except in the arena. And we should be grateful for that because it's realism. Uh, you know, I would say uh, I'm a father of three daughters who are all athletic, but I don't think it's it would be fair to for them to compete straight up, although actually one of my children did, 
compete straight up against um, men. But that's very unusual, very unusual. And it wasn't in a contact sport, right? So, um, or at least minimal contact. So, um, you know, men just have greater bone density and they put on muscle mass more easily than women do. And certain politicians say, uh, look, we're interested in the benefits of all and we don't want women to get hurt, which is beneficial. Now, of course, there's some women that are stronger than some men. There's some women that are larger and they can run faster and lift more weights and so forth. But on the whole, a highly gifted female athlete and a highly gifted male athlete, um, there's, there's going to be that ongoing disparity in muscle mass and bone density and, and ligament density and so on. The one, one way to look at it is through Mar the eyes of Martina Navratilova, who was won more tennis championships than anybody who ever lived. And it's not even close. And she won many of them in mixed doubles, meaning a woman against a man, a male and a female, and one team male and female on the other team. She's also an atheistic lesbian. And she says it's preposterous and terrible to try to put men against women straight up. I won't say who it was, but a few years ago, the number one woman in the world played was saying how good she was. And the number 300 man in the world who isn't even close to making a living as a professional tennis player uh, played the number one woman in the world and crushed her. She won one game. So and he isn't a, even a full-time player. And Navratilova knows these things and says it's just not fair to women to pretend that they're the same as men. She has no problem with men playing against women, but not two men against two women or one man against woman without any compensation. There are differences. And so we should be glad that, that um, you know, you might say the, the movement that wants to um, completely flatten all sexual distinctions has critics even within and how, I mean, how do you wrestle with that, though? And, and obviously not physically, but, but no. you know, philosophically, how do you wrestle with something like that when somebody's saying, no, you know, I fully believe I should be able to. And, and I mean, we've seen, we've seen incredibly successful female athletes. For which we're grateful. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Um, but it, there, there is a distinct difference. And if they're saying, well, well, we want to compete and somebody said, well, then, you know, to, to kind of a counter argument, say, well, if the three rank 300 male in tennis can beat the first, then she should be able to play, play in the men. She just won't win. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the ultimate consequences would be the, essentially if, if it were gender free, all women, professional tennis players would disappear, including, you know, the best in the world whom we rightly celebrate because they're very talented. Absolutely. Um, but there are simply certain things that come with uh, male physiology, and it does not create an even or level playing field at the, at the highest ranks. Without denying for one second how greatly talented the most female, uh, the, the most talented female athletes are. The, part of the problem, as you know, is that self-identification is a big factor here, and self-identification means a man can just declare I'm a woman and that's that. It can, in some circles, it can be apart from even any you know, hormones or anything. A man just says, I feel like I'm a woman, and so let's, let's go win a championship against women. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and it, it, I feel like it, it definitely, at least from, from my seat, and for those of the, that know me, know I love sports and, and love athletics, 
There, there is a distinct difference, though, uh, in the con- competitive realm um, of, like you were saying, that in the physiological realm, or physiological makeup rather for the competitive realm. But when it comes to the the training and and all the work that that's gone into it, it feels very um, trivial just to throw a male in right. um, into that arena to, for for the identification. It, it seems to not just take away from the order that God has placed, and, and we believe in God's authority, but it's not only does that take away from that order, but it takes away from the talent and the other gifts that, that God's given those people. Which in no me- way means that you can't have, you know, field day. A, a girl could, there's could be a second grade girl that's faster than half the boys oh, or maybe all yeah. the gr- boys in right. her class. But at the highest levels, the world-class sprinters, male and female, there'll be a difference. Well, um, we'll wrap this up, but anything that you would just challenge listeners, um, if they're struggling with, with language or they're struggling with, with the way something's worded, anything that you would challenge listeners to with just um, documents or even scripture when they say, man, this is just a tough issue for me to wrap my head around? Well, um, you know, the PCA did come out with a, a pretty good document. Yes. It's a very good document you could turn to on these matters. And I can't remember the title of it offhand. What's it called? The Ad Interim Committee. It goes by a very odd title, Ad Interim Committee Report on Human Sexuality. I can't remember. Yeah, it's, it's, something, it's something long <coughs> and, yeah, and verbose. It, but if, yeah, if you, if you looked up PCA Report on Sexuality, you'd find it just pretty fast on the Internet, probably your first or second hit. You could go there. The other thing I would do is uh, encourage you to keep your eyes open for your friends who are same-sex attracted or have experience some gender dysphoria and if you know them well enough say just tell me about your experience and listen to what they have to say and it may not be what you expect if nothing else you know it'll relieve you of the uh, um, ignorance that you have of just reading everything secondhand and news reports that are you know made to woo you to one side or another just talk to your friends who are same-sex attracted and it'll help you find it easier to be same-sex attracted, and you'll find that a lot of Christians want to live faithfully within God's standards, and it's not the most burdensome thing imaginable in their minds. Oh, that's really great. And one of the things, too, that I think is, is important to point out, none of this documentation was written out of hate. Right. None of it was written to, to ostracize or right. um, do anything to belittle a person and their experience. What it was right. done was to remind us of what God calls us to and what God, what God's word says. And there's, you know, you mentioned earlier, there are people who don't like what's in the Bible. There's certain things that my sinful nature does not like that is in the Bible. Right. Yet I'm called as a believer to submit to that. And this is one of those issues, but it, it feels like it's, it's such a heavy, sensitive identity issue, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah, I would just say that every generation has its own convictions, and every generation has convictions that are, praise God, agreeable, you know, by which I mean Buddhist societies believe things that, are, that match up with the Bible pretty well. And so that allows culture to go well, and that includes Western culture. And there's also aspects of every culture that are contrary to the Bible. So 100 years ago, it's like, we got to get rid of this idea that God is a judge. I mean, God's loving. All this judgment talk has to go. 200 years ago, miracles had to go. 
And there's always a gen, every every generation is like to save Christianity. We got we got to get rid of this. We got to excise this. This is so unpopular. And our our job is not to be popular. Our job is not to save Christianity. Our job is to be loyal to the Lord, and then to help each other live out the Christian life when it's difficult for us. So, uh, I mean, to pick a, a much more common and um, comprehensible problem, people sometimes say, "I boy, I just don't want to be married anymore. I, I just don't like being married. And my husband or my wife are not cruel or vicious. They're not trying to stab me. They haven't been unfaithful. They haven't they're not drug addicts. I just don't want to be married anymore. What do we do? We say, well, you know, your, your feelings, how could I possibly argue with your feelings? We say, you know, give it time. Maybe your feelings will change. Maybe if you keep trying, just keep being kind to your spouse and addressing your feelings, maybe, maybe you'll learn to love your spouse again in a couple of years. In fact, people who do that often find that they do learn to love their spouse again. So we... We live in an age that wants to give primacy to feelings, and feelings are very important, but they're not the final authority in our life. Mm. So, uh, we, we're in this age. We're we're responsible. Have the privilege to help people sort out the importance of things like how I feel and how I think about myself. That's where the challenge lies today. Yeah. Uh. Well, Dr. Doriani, thank you so much. Thanks for um, being willing to speak to a topic that is so. Um, it's, it's so explosive right now on everything. Um, and, you know, our, like I said, the, the goal here for those of you listening is, is not to exploit or, or dehumanize or, or delineate um, anything that they're feeling as much as it is to point us back to what Scripture says because that, that is so much bigger than us. And so thanks for coming on. Thanks for your time and, uh, and your work on this subject. And um, for those listening, if you have further questions, please email them, submit them to us, and uh, we'll get we'll get back to you with some answers. But in the meantime, thanks so much, and Dr. Doriani, we always appreciate you coming on. Glad to be with you. All right.